James, and this is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Sylvan Morris. This episode was recorded on the 28th of December, 2020. For more episodes and show notes, visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Enjoy. Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. All right, so how's it going? I'm all right and you. I'm enjoying my two weeks of holiday right now in sunny Cape Town, South Africa, um, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I know. I'm not sure if we've talked on Matrix or Twitter or anything or if we reached out before. So do you want to give yourself a quick introduction to start off with? Sure. I'm a 24-year-old South African. I work for a small startup here in Cape Town doing some embedded work. So I graduated from UCT, which is the University of Cape Town, Mechatronics Engineering, back in 2018. Um, and been working for my uh, the startup Plantivius for the top past two years. I saw your thing on Twitter and I thought I'd like to chat because uh, um, I've actually been using some of the Rust stuff from that, from the, the Rust book at work. Unfortunately, not on our microcontroller, but um, as some tooling with regards to that. And so I thought that might be an interesting thing to chat about. Yeah, um, definitely. That's, yeah. that's a great place to start. I've, I've definitely <laughs> recommended that for a lot of teams before they dive in headfirst into switching everything over to Rust is definitely get get your feet wet with some tooling or some stuff that's off the critical path. So what kind of stuff are you yeah. using uh, Rust as tooling for? So yeah, actually a little bit of a story. Basically, about a year and a half ago, we realized we've got a little device and we need to install it in people's homes. And being the startup that we are, we need to do this fast and develop fast and realize that we're not going to have all the code ready for when we want to install the device. So the solution to that is OTA for those that don't know, you know, like over the air firmware updates, which is a tough thing to do. Uh, so what we decided to do was we started with, um, we've got a microchip control, microcontroller, the PIC32MM, and microchip provides EasyBL, which is a little like serial bootloader, which is great if you want to do, you know, UART bootloading. But if you've got a device which is sitting in someone's roof, it's a little bit harder to do. And so I reverse engineered their serial protocol and realized that I could probably get our devices in ESP32, ESP8266 on board which is connected via UART. And so if I can get that to act as this TCP UART bridge, I can get a server to act as a serial bootloader via TCP, via Wi-Fi. And so, yeah, long story short, I managed to reverse engineer the serial protocol. And then basically I wrote, I took, so basically I had to come up with this this server and I've never, I've never done web dev ever before in my life. So I was like, oh, what do I do? Maybe I use Python, whatever. And but Rust, I've been kind of looking at Rust, and then I realized the final chapter of the Rust book was a multi-threaded TCP server. And I was like, well, I need to design a TCP server. And I've never done it before. Maybe I should, you know, just do it the way they told me to. Of course, I have to read the whole book first. So I think Friday morning I started reading the book. By Monday evening, I'd finished it. Monday evening, I started implementing the server. And then over the next few weeks, um, I worked on this kind of server that now to this day is one of the ways we. <laughs> update our devices. If we can connect it to Wi-Fi, we can we can do OTA via my little Rust TCP server, which is sitting on like a dis- digital ocean instance somewhere. But yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was very chuffed, very, very chuffed. Yeah, being the small team that we are, like, I mean, I'm the only person writing tooling right now. I was writing tooling, so I kind of decided to do whatever I wanted, I decided to go with Rust. Since then, we've decided that Python is is the more accessible approach, and so I've been I've been restricted in my Rust usage. 
but mm. but I did I did manage to get a little bit more done once we once we came up with our own OTA approach, which we're still working on. I was able to do kind of a serial version of that, which I again wrote in Rust, at least at least the PC side, which I love because it's it's all about serialization. You know, like if you if you're doing data flows, it's all about serialization. And Python's got the struct module, which uh, credit with credits due is very good. Um, but I, I genuinely enjoyed designing structs in C and then in Rust, and then just having serialization work perfectly between the two um, using uh, Serdet. But yeah, so that's that's kind of what we've been up up to, and I've just kind of been genuinely quite interested in the Rust thing. And unfortunately, we use a PIC thirty two mm, which I think the last time it was supported by LLVM was ten years ago. So yeah, <laughs> I didn't even realize there was ever a PIC backend for I... that. Although PIC thirty two are close enough to the the MIPS targets, isn't? Oh, it's micro. Am I remembering that the correctly? Yeah, they're micro MIPS. So there, there have been. I have been on some chats and. GitHub to see if maybe they can be done, um, but I haven't pushed it too far because uh, the fact of the matter is we've got our whole like I've spent the last two years writing everything in C, so we're at the point where like it just doesn't make sense to to change it now. Yeah, but it is it is even for the next generation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've I've gained a bit of a like reputation for any time we do something new that like Sylvan's going to want to do it in in Rust. So I have to I have to hold back and say no no it's fine we can do it in Python or we can do it in C but yeah no that's that's kind of what I want to chat about but it's just interesting story yeah it's always it's always interesting there there's definitely a an organizational cost so wearing like my more manager hat instead of engineering hat it's definitely important that the the whole team knows and understands the tooling that you're using because if you were to win the lottery tomorrow and leave and they have to maintain all of your code and they don't know anything about Rust that's definitely a, a challenge or it's a risk and as a manager you're always trying to reduce risk so that's definitely one of the reasons why i suggest people start with tooling because usually you can get people on board and like especially when you have things like cli tools and things like that where it's just like oh just download this binary or just cargo install yeah. this binary and you're good to go that's usually a pretty good story especially if people are coming from a background like python or things like that where packaging can be really challenging if you're using third-party packages and stuff like that and setting up either a virtual environment or you know whatever you need for installation usually having like a single single static binary to deploy is is a that usually you can cross compile to windows mac and linux pretty easily is a pretty good use case and then that's usually how you get people on board of like oh yeah there's that tool that just always works and i don't have to think about it and then usually they're more interested once they've you know extended features and things like that but getting kind of team buy-in is always a thing it's one of the things that we do at ferris a lot is trainings for those kind of teams where they have one or two rust people on their teams now all of a sudden they need to get the other like four, five, six, 10, 20 developers on their team up to speed with Rust so that they can all use the same tooling and things like that. So yeah, there's definitely that in-between point of, okay, we have something that works and we have one or two like people on the team who are really excited to use it, but how do we get it as a more widely used and understood tool in our team? And that, that can always be a bit of a challenge for, for different companies at different times. Yeah, and no, I mean, I think one of the biggest things is as much as you want to be like, oh, Rust is great for this and this, and it makes you it allows you to do some fun things, and you know you get to discover a bunch of stuff. There's always a deadline, you know. Like we like to, you like to chat about, oh, it's all these cool things, but the fact of the matter is that in two weeks' time, we need a tool that does a certain thing, and if it takes someone two weeks to even get into Rust or whatever, then suddenly it's you know whatever your, you know, Python's better chance because it just everyone knows it um and so yeah I, I, I found that was the big thing it was like trying to convince my team to use it it was like cool guys give me a week to at least like help you figure figure out what is going on 
And it's immediately the reaction is, okay, well, we could just spend a week writing our tool, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's good. It's, it's good enough. We're not, we're not looking for like high speed performance. We're not looking for like async functionality. It's, it's, it's something that has to pump out some serial into a microcontroller, read out what's coming back. And the fact of the matter is like Python's been doing that for, you know, decades. So yeah, it's, it is, it is interesting thing. Like it's always nice to have like all these, these great benefits, but Unless you're really pushing the edge of stuff, it's it's quite difficult to you know push for it, especially when you have kind of people just pushing against it. You know, going oh, but I know I can do this in my own thing. I can you know just let me do this. You know, <laughs> yeah. But that that's that's kind of the approach we've taken. Yeah, the best tools especially, are always the ones that you know how to use. You know what I mean? And and mm-hmm. especially if you don't have a group that's interested or has like a specific use case where they say, oh yeah, in this in this case, Rust would really help us. It's always a challenge to start that conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that, that that was kind of the interesting thing is that being able to take the book and kind of pump something out that actually works. I mean, it's it's something we use to this day. It's been working for yeah, over a year now of like where we've been doing OT updates via this. I mean, it's it's not perfect. It's like bugs, which is like kind of like, so then it did this thing and I'd be like, no, it's fine. You know, give it 15 minutes and it'll sort itself out. But being able to being able to basically like hack, and for me, it was, it was my first big kind of tooling project. I'd done a lot of embedded stuff to that point. But where I was able to kind of get something that I put into my friend's house anywhere, I mean, literally anywhere in the world, and suddenly I'm able to just put new code on there and, you know, reset it. And within within 15 minutes or I think it took like eight minutes, you can have new code being run, and which was just great. Um, it really it really helped us improve stuff and specifically help us catch things because, I mean, we're in the testing phase. We've got like dog food and friends and family and all those kind of, you know, but now that we've kind of come up with our own solution, it's it's quite nice to have like this backstop store because, you know, things can go wrong. But yeah. Yeah. Actually writing a bootloader is one of my, my next things because I've got a couple sensors deployed in my house and it's not so bad to go and reflash them, but I, I'm at the point where I'm going... <laughs> Right, I should I should probably just write a bootloader, shouldn't I? So I don't have to like walk over and bring a debugger and plug in a debugger into the connectors. It, you know, so I, I have a feeling probably writing at least a a really basic bootloader so that I can do over the air updates since they're wireless sensor hmm. devices. Probably going to end up writing a bootloader in Rust. I, there's been a couple other people who have written bootloaders already, so I either need to go like find one that I like and adapt it for what I'm using it for, or just write my own that's terrible and you know does does the basic amount of work that I need. But yeah, it's one of those things where it really changes how you develop software being able to have a bootloader and it's or a, like an over-the-air update mm. capability just because it it changes it from having to deploy and hope that you got everything right or even just like the tedious of having to the tedium of having to like sit there and attach a debugger to all of the devices and especially as i start getting towards like right now i have like two or three devices on the wireless sensor network mm. and once i start having like six or seven or eight if i want to start pushing firmware updates i don't want to like spend an hour walking around all the devices which might be battery powered on my, my yeah. home but yeah so i definitely i think probably a bootloader is one of the next challenges that i'm going to have for my wireless devices just because it is it's so much better to have a bootloader and uh over the air update capabilities yeah no it's, it is great I, I don't know if you know belena i mean you should know belena with their kind of raspberry pi oh. stuff um but i've been looking into kind of what they've been doing with their whole you know fleet approach because that, this is their thing you know it's it's embedded it's embedded fleet management. You know, they've got OTAs, they've got logging, they've got tracing, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, that's that for me has been really interesting to see how far they've taken it. I mean, you're obviously you're sitting with you're, you're running Linux. You're not you know you're not going to be running on like a PIC32 on or an SDM32. But the the amount of tooling that really pushed onto these devices is quite amazing. Um, I was I was playing around with with a friend's project. I was trying to set up some like audio stuff for her, and just looking at their like their, I don't know if you've seen any of their like example projects. But one of them is effectively like a Sonos replica where you can have you know Spotify connect and. Funny enough, I was watching the logging and it, it panicked at one point, the, the Spotify service running and it's rust. <laughs> their, their, their Spotify service is rust. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was like, oh, look, that. I mean, it broke, so not great, but I can see that it's panicked and <laughs> it's rust. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, for, that, for me, that genuinely is one of the most interesting parts of embedded development is how you've got this kind of software development techniques creeping toward, creeping into the, 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 like, the realm of it. Because, I mean, for years, you had to run Windows because no one produced any of their tools for Linux. And now it's slowly getting there. Like I recently, I don't know if you, do you know Seedling, the, the unit test framework? Uh, so I recently set up Seedling with CircleCI with the plan being that I can then mock our like our embedded system mm-hmm. and run it, you know, have it on pushes. And that for me is just like amazing because I mean, you can get to the point where we'll have commits pushed and then eventually just OTA straight onto a dog food device um, and then run tests. It's just like mind blowing that you can do that with a device that's got what, like, 32 kilobytes of RAM. Um. <laughs> That's why I'm writing I'm so. writing this Embedded the Missing Parts book because there's so many software development techniques that totally apply to embedded systems development, but it seems like embedded systems development has been in this weird self-enforced dark age for a really long time of, yeah, like you said, like tooling that's not automatable or not scriptable because it only has a Windows client and it requires a license dongle and how do you put that on your CI server? And I've, I've done that you know, over the last 10 years for a couple companies of where I have provisioned like an IAR license on our CI machine so that we could compile and run and either run unit tests on device or off device or things like that. But there's a huge amount of this that 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 is very challenging. So you mentioned uh, Belena in, in the more bare metal embedded. I, I've talked to a couple of the folks at Memfault. I'm not sure if you've read like okay. the interrupt blog or anything like that. But yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's great stuff. It's great, great before they started uh, Memfault, I sat down with them and that's where I wrote the table of contents. So the Memfault folks are a couple of ex-Pebble and a couple of ex-other um, embedded development company engineers. And we kind of sat down and it's it's one of those things where it's really amazing where if you've worked at a company where people had their software develop, embedded software development practice together, they've been doing all of these things for 10 or 15 years already. Like the concept of CI or CD or logging or tracing or, or tracebacks and things like that is not super new, but it's just not widespread in the embedded industry. And it it really seems to come down to, have you worked at a company where you've seen that this is possible and know that this has been possible for a really long time? So I've used Seedling, like you mentioned, for unit testing Mm -hmm. for customers and things like that. And before that, I was using a framework called CMaka, which is based, it's a fork of the old C-based Google test framework and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's definitely been possible for a while, but it's really amazing to me that there are so many embedded developers who don't know that this is a possibility. And yeah, that, that embedded missing parts book is, is aiming to be exactly that of just like, if nothing else, introducing you to these concepts so that you can have a conversation about it, or you can read about how this relates to embedded systems so you know, like you can go read blog posts about continuous integration or continuous delivery in non-embedded context to get some of these ideas of how they can work and then at least have some layer of translation of, okay, but how does this help me as an embedded developer with, like you said, of, of having staggered rollouts, for example. So maybe your first set of users 
or your cohort of users is your friends and family. And then maybe you have something like a 10% of beta users will get this firmware image and you see if anything breaks in practice, or then you roll it out to all of your beta users. And then you do like 10% of your production users and then roll it out, you know, and I know Memfault has some tooling for capturing logs and doing these kind of cohort based rollouts and things like that as services that they provide. But and I've seen a couple of other providers in the embedded space do this as well that are targeting more of the bare metal applications rather than embedded Linux like Belena is. But it's really interesting to see in some industries how pervasive this is and in some industries how totally not pervasive this is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. Like I, I studied at UCT and I did a mechatronics degree, which there is firmware I've taught that you like get taught assembly, you get a taught C, but I mean, testing is never mentioned. It's, you know, like it's, it's, it's debugging is probably the most important thing you could be taught at universities, especially for an electrical engineer. And it's, it's glossed over, you know, like you spend more time focusing on Fermi levels in material science than you do on debugging. You kind of go like, let's, let's maybe focus on things that are slightly more relevant to your, your day to day. And so my exposure to continuous, you know, continuous integration, continuous development, deployment um, and unit testing is, is basically been my interest in, you know, just general software engineering. I'm not a software engineer. I, I did not study software engineering, but I've gone and, you know, I read various blog posts and various things just to kind of learn more about it. And then you kind of realize that actually embedded development, it's software. Like, I mean, you like to, we like to call it firmware. We like to say we're special. We like to say that, oh, we use a debugger and, you know, whatever. The fact of the matter is it's code. And as much and yes, there are special cases where, you know, you need to you need to run a motor or whatever and that that you can't like do on a computer. But the fact of the matter is that the rest of it can. It can all be done on a computer. And that means that it can all be done through, you know, various software development things. And people have been doing this for years, as you said. Like it's it's it just for some reason takes someone to go, hey, maybe there's a better way to do this and look at it and go, oh, there is. And people have been doing this for you know decades. So I, I totally agree with you that this kind of like this knowledge isn't isn't being implanted, I think, at the, er, the earlier levels, like, you know, the universities or, I mean, for, given my my perspective, I when I came to the company, we didn't have any firmware, like there was zero. I, my first, the first stuff I did was um, I wrote the hardware abstraction layer. I was running, re basically reading the data sheet and just writing functions. See? <laughs> so I, I was never going to get exposed to this. It was simply me kind of, oh, maybe there's somewhere to do this. Hey, like, maybe we can do unit tests. Hey, maybe we can do this. And it's, um, the, the real difficult part is you want to do all these good things because you know there's a good like result at the end. The hurdles are the problems because you're not only fighting the hurdle of hey, how do you how how do you get a unit test framework to run on Circle CI? You're also going oh, also I need to make sure our temperature sensors work for the products about to be released next week. You know which one's slightly more important. And so that that I think is one of the difficult things is if if you're in a community that doesn't value these things, doesn't value these software techniques, you're not going to be incentivized to do them because you're expected to just pump out code or expected to do whatever. And and unless the knowledge is there and the like, it's unless it's you know it's, it's believed. It's the, the you know we, this is the best way to do this thing. This is why it takes so much time. Unless that's already there, it's very tough to go. Actually, this is the better way to do it because. The present key is like, oh, well, we get software out as fast as we can, and this is just going to slow us down. Because obviously the time it saves isn't, it isn't the known time, it's the unknown time, it's the debugging, it's the it's the tracing, it's the, you know, figuring all that. That's, that's all like, it's unknown time, so it's very hard to go, yeah, we're we saving it because there's no way to really quantify that. Yeah, one of the things that I, you know, like you said, it's always, it's always a challenge. Part of my job is consulting, and very, very often I run into these same things at, at different levels, whether you're talking about different techniques or different approaches and things like that. And, and getting buy-in on using certain techniques and using certain approaches can be a challenge sometimes if there's 
you've got a resistive audience, if, if that makes sense. And one of the, the most effective ways I found of talking about this that really matches, especially if you have managers with a lot of management experience or at least a little bit of embedded or excuse me, uh, engineering experience is to talk about risk is, because that's generally why we do these things like testing is that we're reducing risk. And especially when you have in a startup environment, you only get one chance to get it right. Usually when you have these tight deadlines, there's no time, like you said, to, to spend extra time debugging and things like that. So usually the question is not, do I do testing or not? Generally phrasing the, the conversation around the, the concept of, hey, look, we, we only have one chance to get this right and we need it to be delivered on a predictable amount of time. And the way that you do that is you, you clear all of the low-hanging fruit so that you don't end up getting bit by these things. So definitely speaking in terms of risk is usually something that managers, I found, really relate with, where you say, okay, yeah, it's going to take maybe one day extra, maybe sometimes. Sometimes it even takes less because like you said, it, it takes less time debugging, but you say, okay, it can take one day extra and the level of risk is much lower or it could take one day faster, but 50-50 shot, it will take three times as long because I have to go troubleshoot things and, and do things like this. And um, especially once they start seeing those in practice where, where they can see the before and after and have proof points of that of like, hey, yeah, it really did. You know, since we started doing these techniques, we've been much more predictable or we're able to schedule this. And and that's one of those things that I find managers really appreciate is you talked about, you talk to them on the order of risk because there's one of the things i can't remember who said it but estimates without associated risk are worthless because if you just say oh it's going to take one week that, that's not actually a very useful estimate but once you start saying okay i'm 50 percent confident i can deliver this in a week and i'm 99 percent confident i can deliver it in three weeks and once you start talking on that level and once you start saying well once i start adding unit testing and things like that it becomes i'm 50% confident I can deliver this in one week and I'm 99% confident I can deliver this in one and a half weeks. Then they mm -hmm. start understanding the difference of that. Oh, what they're providing with that is they're tightening that bound. So definitely mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I have a whole, a whole thing that I do when I do <laughs> consulting of just coaching engineers to speak more effectively with managers, because a lot of the times when I get brought in to do consulting, it's just a breakdown of communication where you have very good managers and you have very good engineers but they're just not communicating effectively. And so they're feeling that mismatch of, they think that they're saying something, but the other side, you know, they're transmitting some idea, but the other side's not receiving it effectively. And that's not necessarily because someone's obstructive or, or unintelligent or something like that. There's just this impedance mismatch of, of speaking between a management domain and the concerns you worry about as a manager and the engineering domain and the concerns you worry about it as an engineer. So a lot of the times it's a little bit of communications co coaching for managers and for engineers as a consultant to to make sure people are like understanding the trade-offs that each other are working on and trusting each other to to manage those trade-offs so definitely for engineers one of the things that i recommend to them is think about risk think about what could go wrong especially if you're doing something like talking about rust of you know what what are the potential rewards and what are the potential risks and being able to quantify that as an engineer you'll have a much better time communicating to managers and getting buy-in on on certain decisions or technology decisions because they can make a more informed choice because they may not understand what rust is and what it delivers and you've played around with it and you've used it and you understand it and that's great but part of your job as an engineer is also to get that understanding over to them because that's that's your job is to is to kind of pass that uh speaking nebulous on the you as an engineer yeah um, no no I, I get i get what you mean I, I really like the way that you phrase that as risk we we try to do something that like we talk about certainty 
And I think I think in some ways that's an inverse, but risk is definitely a better way to put it. And yeah, I, I do appreciate the idea of that, you know, an extra day reduces risk by arguably and like an, a non-linear amount. So, yeah. you, 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 you know, sometimes sometimes taking that extra day can, you know, save you. But yeah, risk risk is probably a better way to put it. I, I do appreciate that comment. Thank you. Yeah, and definitely with with startups, that's that's the thing that I found is is the the answer is always it needs to be done as quick. Like I've spent a couple of years, especially in IoT startups and things like that, and and when especially when they they're like, oh, we want custom hardware and custom software in two weeks, go, and you're like, uh, excuse me, like, and it's one of those things where you realize that like, and I've I've delivered on projects like those, those are super stressful, but you go, okay, if I only like I've agreed to deadlines like that, and I'm like, okay, I two weeks is basically like the minimum amount of time. And if anything goes wrong, we're done. Like we're cooked. So like, there's definitely chances where I, I go, okay, we, we only have time for one hardware spin. So we better get it right. And then like, we only have time to deploy software once. So we better get it right. And, and those kind of things of, uh, you know, when you only have one chance, sometimes doing the extra due diligence makes all the difference because you only are going to get one shot. You don't have enough time in the budget to try again, where Usually, especially when I'm talking about estimates and things like that, the difference between a hard deadline of one or two weeks and a hard deadline of three, four, five, six weeks can be a huge amount of difference in terms of what we, you know, cost yeah. it out because there's no room for second chances. Where if you have room to like, you know, try and fail and try and fail and do iterative approaches, that's great. But when you only have room to get it right once, then that's, you know, it's go big or go home kind of time. No, I get exactly what you mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's all those those two week those two week projects. I luckily haven't had a two week project yet, <laughs> and I hopefully never have to have one of those. But it is it is honestly that it's it's not that the project can't be done. It's just you know like how full of a project you want. You know, it's, there's 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 a bare metals approach. The bare metal approach which will solve this, but you know that means we're buying a Raspberry Pi instead of rolling our own. You know, it's it's those type of trade offs. And also, how much, how much, how much of an engineer do you want left after that? Are you, yeah. are you expecting? <laughs> are you coming on for three months and cheers, goodbye? You know, go sleep for the rest of the year, or um, do you expect us to continue working for you for the foreseeable future? With one of those, well, one of those is kind, of, you know. That's one of those things. Yeah. That startups often have a challenge with of of like setting a reasonable pace of of delivery and and integration and stuff like that because it can be. Like you said, really challenging to deliver at those at a consistent basis. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's important to have a like a, a realistic view. It's not necessarily that oh, you know, in, every engineer must only work six hours a day and make sure then they'll be alright. It's like crunch. There's definitely time for crunch and there's definitely time to put it down. But it's it's all about budget. You're 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 using up time now, which needs to be replaced sometime else. And like as long as that's within the full view. Um, I think I think it can be done well. And luckily, where I'm at right now, they've had a very good view of if we burn people out, there's, there's only one person who can do that job. So if they're burnt out, no one's doing that job. Um, so let's let's make sure that they're still around, which has been greatly appreciated from my side. But yeah, I I definitely get that point of kind of like it's all it's all about compromise. It's it's all sorry budgeting and compromise, and it's, there's never really like a smooth answer of oh no, we, you know we we don't force our engineers to do this or all our engineers do 12 hour days because yeah. Oof. Uh, yeah, I don't think I would. I don't think I would last in a company very long that uh, expected twelve-hour days ever. Yeah, <laughs> me neither. Me neither. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. Well, it's been excellent to to have a quick chat with you. Um, before we wrap up, is there any 
cool project you're working on or anything else that or a Twitter account or anything like that that you'd like to plug or you definitely want people to go look at after they after they hear this conversation? No, no, no. I've, I've got nothing I need to show. Um, just just it came for the chat and it was a good conversation. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for reaching out and uh, definitely let's uh, have another chat again sometime soon. Sounds good. All right. Cheers, cheers. Enjoy the rest of the day. Bye. Bye. You too.